0: Hey there, I'm Mike Wong, and you're listening to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm thankful every single day to be located at an institution where I am in close proximity to so much cutting edge research. It's inspiring to be surrounded by people who are not just very intelligent, but also super willing. For you to knock on their door at any time to talk about science, and in our case, a little bit of Star Trek 2. In October 2017, humanity discovered its first interstellar asteroid, a piece of rock that formed in another solar system. And it just so happens that a first-year graduate student in my department, Qi Cheng Zhang, is playing an instrumental role in characterizing this object. What a start to grad school, huh? For those of you who don't think about space all the time, or who are used to thinking about space in a futuristic setting where warp technology exists, it's crucial to understand just how empty space really is. Star systems are like little islands spread out over vast distances in a great, inky sea. It would take over four years for light to travel to the nearest star system. And since things made of matter, like people or rockets or asteroids, don't travel nearly at the speed of light, this interstellar asteroid has had a long and lonely journey. From its place of origin. So these things are pretty rare, and it's just super cool. I mean, there's no other way to describe it that we've found something from so very far off. Let's go talk to Keecheng and find out how we detected this object and what we've learned from it so far. So welcome to Strange New Worlds, Kechang. I'm really glad that I could interview you about a really exciting happening in planetary science and astronomy that was just like a couple weeks ago, right?
1: Yeah, about a month or so. About a yeah. month
0: or so, yeah. So first of all, before we get to know this very strange object that entered our solar system, let's get to know you. And you're not quite as strange, and you're not from quite as far away, but why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners anyway?
1: Okay, so I'm a first-year planetary science graduate student at Caltech. I arrived from uh, Santa Barbara, UCSB, which is about 100 miles to the uh, northwest, and uh, so not that far away, and I studied physics there. And so I've basically just always had an interest in like objects in our solar system, specifically just the small bodies, like comets, asteroids, rocks, and ice floating around in our neighborhood. Stuff you can actually look up in the sky and just see. And so that's what got me into this field of science.
0: Excellent. Mm-hmm. So Qijeng, an interstellar asteroid entered our solar system, and we discovered it about a month ago. Can you tell me a little bit about how this object was discovered?
1: So as part of uh, our effort to find potential threats to Earth, potential objects in space that could impact the Earth and wipe us out like the dinosaurs.
0: Yikes, that would not be good.
1: (laughs) We have arrays of uh, telescopes all around the world that are constantly monitoring the sky and looking for these uh, rocks that could uh, be bad if they were to hit. And so one of these uh, telescope surveys uh, for asteroids is called PANSTARS, it's located in Hawaii. And it just consists of two telescopes in Hawaii constantly monitoring the sky every night, every clear night, for these things. And it occasionally finds things that are not these uh, near-Earth asteroids, including very often comets, and in this case just a uh, random wanderer that just happened to come into our solar system. And so uh, I believe it was sometime mid-October it first detected this object just passing through our sky and it was flagged as an object. It wasn't immediately recognized as an interstellar object, first just classified as just the regular old asteroid, but eventually over the course of the next week or so we determined that it was something that could not have been from within the solar system based on its orbit.
0: So it's really nice that we have systems and telescopes that are looking out for our own well-being. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that kind of makes me happy, you know, um, that we'll, we'll know if something's coming. Do, do you know if we have the capability to actually do something about it, if we found that an asteroid was headed straight, dead on for Earth?
1: Uh, There are people working on proposals on different methods of potentially dealing with these objects, either deflecting them or in some cases where we can't, how to minimize the effect of a potential impact. And so there are people working at JPL and NASA whose sole jobs are to deal with threats like these. And potential uh, solutions might include like uh, using just ramming a spacecraft into it to just shift its trajectory or uh, using a laser to shift its trajectory or just destroying it with a laser or a nuke. And so there's lots of options that have been proposed. So far, we haven't actually attempted to test any of these yet, but it's possible in the next few years that there's been a few potential missions to try out those techniques
0: right and the first step is always to find them so we're yes. looking and we're cataloging and developing technologies to actually save our civilization if we were to find an object that was heading straight on i think one of those projects was called star wars is that right one, one, one of those like sh- shooting an asteroid down with lasers was called star wars
1: i was under the impression that was the uh Shooting down nukes from. uh,
0: Oh, was that shooting down nukes? (laughs) Asteroids, nukes, they're both devastating. It's Mm -hmm. easy to get them confused. (laughs) You're wearing a Star Wars shirt, aren't you? Uh,
1: Yeah. What does it say? May the uh, p over c times 1 plus r sub s be with you? So,
0: may the, and then a fraction p over c multiplied by the quantity 1 plus r sub s be with you. So I'm guessing that p over c times quantity 1 plus r sub s is force. Okay, this is too nerdy. I just need to know why does that, so what, p is that pressure? No, p is power. Power. Oh, power over the speed, speed of, light. of light. Okay, so c is the speed of mm-hmm. light, power over the speed of light, and then what is r sub
1: s? The albedo. Or the
0: albedo. Okay, what's albedo? reflectance. Albedo is reflectance, okay. So 1 plus the albedo, what is 1 plus the albedo? Usually it's like 1 minus the albedo is the absorptivity, right?
1: Yes, however, in this case we care about the force on an object. Uh-huh. So if you shine a light on it at force P, well, with power P, it exerts this force on the object from photon pressure
0: this is photon pressure so this is like an asteroid or any object sitting in space and it's getting hit by sunlight yes with a power p you divide that by the speed of light you multiply it by one plus the albedo and you get the force that that light exerts on the object yes that's such a nerdy shirt (laughs) Where on
1: Earth did you get that shirt? Photonics conference.
0: <laughs> Photonics conference, of course. Okay, okay, okay. Back to the asteroids. So we mentioned that this asteroid that was recently discovered by a survey looking for asteroids that might impact Earth determined that this particular asteroid came from outside of the solar system. So let's quickly just review where most of the other asteroids that we see reside. And you also mentioned comets. So tell me just a a little bit about the structure of the solar system and where asteroids are and where comets are and where they come from.
1: Alright, so we have Earth which goes in roughly a circle around the sun, basically a distance one astronomical unit, one AU from the sun. And so most, uh, most asteroids are more or less within a factor of a few of that distance from the sun and they just stay in relatively circular orbits maybe slightly farther out, but generally not straying beyond a few astronomical units. And so the vast majority of all asteroids, which I think we now know of, about 700,000, are within that part of the solar system. We also have comets, which are essentially asteroids with ice. Those can come from farther out, as far as about a light year away in some cases. Last month, though, we, this new object we found, if you follow its trajectory back, it does not originate from any of these areas of, that the other objects these asteroids or comets come from. This object came from well beyond where the sun's gravity would have any influence on its uh, trajectory. And so that basically means that it had to have come from another star, had to have formed in like a separate solar system, potentially very far away.
0: That's super cool, and so this object has a funky name, doesn't it? Yes, what is that name?
1: Its official name is uh one i Omua Oumuamua. Oumuamua. yes, I believe it means the uh first messenger oh wow uh
0: in do, do you know like the etymology of that or what uh culture that comes from
1: uh it's Hawaiian. I forget exactly what part means what, but I believe the O means messenger, and the mu'a mu'a repeated it emphasizes the fact that it's the first one.
0: Ah, very cool. O mu'a mu'a. Yes. Okay, this this is so fun to say. O mu'a mu'a.
1: Actually, starts with an Okina, which is a Hawaiian letter, which is just, I guess, a Hawaiian letter. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't exist in English. Yes.
0: Very interesting. Okay, so we detected Oumuamua, we traced its orbit, and realized that it came from outside of the solar system. Yes. And then what did
1: we do? Then it was announced and everyone with telescope time, who was remotely interested in solar system science, pointed their telescopes at this object to figure out what it looks like, what color it is, and figure out what it's made of. And so as far as we can tell, it looks fairly elongated. It might potentially even be tumbling in space, and it's red.
0: Okay, so let's break that down into different chunks. So it's elongated. I saw some of these artist impression pictures uh, on the internet during the press releases, and it looks like a rod in space. Now, I know we don't actually have pictures of it that show that it's a rod in space, because it's hard to resolve such a detailed image. So how did we discover that it was elongated?
1: Well, so if you look at how bright this object is, and you measure its brightness over the course of, say, a night, you actually find that it varies on the order of about a factor of 10 from when it's brightest and smallest. So there's a couple possible explanations. One is that it could just be a regular round object where one side's really bright, one side's really dark. And if it's spinning, then occasionally you'll have the dark side pointed at us. And occasionally you'll have the bright side pointed at us. So that's one explanation, except like, we haven't seen an asteroid in our solar system, at least. Or in fact, very many objects in our solar system at all that have properties remotely similar to that. And so what's usually the case when we see a regular asteroid vary in brightness over time is that it's not a sphere. Whenever it spins, it occasionally looks bigger or smaller depending on which side is facing us. If it's uniformly bright in reflectance, then how bright the object is in total depends on which face is facing us. And so from that, we can infer that its shape is probably not spherical and, in fact, is elongated.
0: I see. So the fact that it's tumbling helps us determine that it's elongated. Uh, yes. Cool. Now, Qi Cheng, have you seen much Star Trek? Uh, no. So there's this movie called Star Trek For The Voyage Home, <laughs> where a very elongated alien cylinder comes to Earth. And long story short, basically this alien entity has been communicating with other sentient life forms on Earth besides humans, namely humpback whales. And in the far future, in the 23rd century when Star Trek takes place, humpback whales have gone extinct. So this giant alien cylinder comes to try to find the humpback whales, and it starts evaporating the oceans looking for its lost friends, and basically Captain Kirk and company have to travel back in time to the 1980s, get some humpback whales, and bring them into the future to repopulate the species and satisfy this giant alien cylinder that is destroying earth. And it's supposed to be a nice allegory for environmentalism and like not killing off species on our planet. But anyhow, when I saw <laughs> these artist impressions of this elongated Oumuamua asteroid, I was like, my goodness, it looks exactly like <laughs> this giant elongated alien entity that came to Earth in Star Trek For The Voyage Home. So how do we know it's not an alien spaceship?
1: Well, I mean, we can't disprove the fact <laughs> that it... <laughs> But, uh I mean, for one, it looks, color-wise at least, it looks like a fairly typical asteroid in our solar system. We have asteroids that are red in, like, basically the exact same nature that this object is. And other than that, it's moving in just a regular gravitationally influenced orbit around the sun. Well, I guess unbound trajectory around the sun, but it does not appear to have any rockets attached to it <laughs> that yeah. could control its motion.
0: <laughs> so it looks basically like any old asteroid except for its weird shape.
1: Yeah, in so- fact, not sure its shape is even that weird. I believe we have radar images of at least one other, or at least I've seen a radar image of one other asteroid that's similarly elongated, so it's not completely impossible for it to just be like just the regular old asteroid.
0: Okay, very cool. So tell me a little bit more about what it means for an asteroid to be red.
1: Well, I mean, like I'm just thinking of it as in you go over there, you look at it, and it looks red. Ah. That, that's literally what, in, in in this case, that's literally what it means. Okay, So.
0: and we determined that via the spectra?
1: Yes, and or just taking pictures of the object in different filters. Oh. So like if you take a picture of it through a red filter versus a green filter and then look at how much brighter it is in red compared to green, you can figure out how red it looks.
0: Now you're working on a paper based on this asteroid. Can you tell me a little bit about what's going into your paper?
1: Uh, sure. So I was actually originally part of one of the uh, groups of people that managed to get telescope time immediately after this object was announced. actually borrowed it from uh, someone else who technically officially had the telescope time. And so I'm co-author on this paper that should be getting published very soon that shows basically some data on its uh, brightness in the different filters, as I just mentioned, and its spectra. And the lead author of this paper also got some data on uh, the lack of meteors that you would potentially expect if it were to have been throwing off dust very far out from the solar system as it was coming in. But we don't see that, so we can rule out the fact that it was ejecting dust far away from the solar system, which doesn't say too much, but is a result. So that's uh, one paper. I also just yesterday actually submitted another paper, rather less focused on this object and more of a thought experiment on whether or not we can like trace any of these types of objects back to where they came from. Because it would be interesting to like have a sample of like an extrasolar planetary system within our own solar system that we could potentially eventually like go and study and with like actual spacecraft. And so that paper basically just looks at like the statistics involving like star densities and scattering by gravity since every time that an object that one of these interstellar objects passes by a star it'll get slightly deflected and then if it gets deflected by too many stars then we can't trace its path back any farther and then so i look at factors like that along with the fact that we don't know stars their positions and velocities very well. So that also limits how far back we can trace them to and things like that in general.
0: Are you optimistic that we'll be able to learn very much through this method given how uncertain the trajectories and the positions of stars are?
1: So that really depends on how old these objects typically are. If a typical interstellar object is on the order of the Milky Way galaxy in age, then it's very unlikely that we'll be able to trace any of these objects back.
0: And the Milky Way galaxy, remind me, is like 10 billion years old?
1: Yeah, roughly, more or less. So
0: that's a really old age. Okay.
1: Yeah, so any objects that were created back then and were ejected into interstellar space back then is very unlikely to be traceable back to its origin
0: right because it's been wandering the galaxy for so long being deflected changing yeah but if they're much younger
1: yes so like if we had virtually perfect knowledge of our neighboring stars and near perfect knowledge of the trajectory of an interstellar object we could potentially trace it back on the order of a million or a few million tens of millions of years
0: nice So what's next in terms of research for Oumuamua?
1: For me, at least, I'm trying to get back to my other research that this has sort of sidetracked me away (laughs) from. Yeah. So uh, not much on that regard. Hubble is uh, actually in the process of taking some more observations, probably the last of the observations we'll ever get of this object, as it leaves our solar system. And so I think its primary objective is to just constrain its orbit a bit better than we have currently. And so I think the last observation is on January 1st, after which all observations of this object are done, and it's just essentially all theory. I think we're also getting some infrared observations. Might have potentially gotten them already. I forget when the date was, but with Spitzer. And so those would constrain its actual size. So currently, all the size estimates that have been published, they've been assuming that it has a specific albedo of around, I think, 10%. But that number is based on the albedo of solar system asteroids. And if it's, like, not 10%, maybe it's, like, 1% or, like, 50%, then, like, those size estimates would be extremely wrong. And so those infrared observations would constrain just how big the object actually is.
0: I see. So we derive the size of the object based on how much light it reflects, and we have to assume a certain reflectivity or albedo. And these infrared observations will help us actually pin down the albedo instead of assuming it, and therefore get a better constraint on how large the object is. How how large exactly do we think it is right now?
1: I think it's, mean diameters on the order of a few hundred meters.
0: Okay, so it is the size of a spaceship.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Potentially.
0: So yeah, um, wow, how lucky we are to be able to observe something from a completely different solar system. Do we have any estimates for exactly how special this is? Do we expect to find more of these in the near future, or is this like a one-off thing?
1: Based on the fact that we actually found this object, It's more likely that these objects are regular visitors to our solar system than a one-off object, because if it were a one-off object, odds are we wouldn't find it. Ah. So just based on that, the fact that we found one of these objects, and with PanSTARRS being on the order of, I believe, 10 years or so old, people have estimated that, based on the fact that we find one of these objects every 10 years, there should be about one or so objects of this size within the orbit of Earth, of the Sun, at any given time. So that's just based on the fact that we found one object mm-hmm. in 10 years with a system like PanStars. So with future surveys, like LSST, which should come online in the next uh, five or so years.
0: Remind me what LSST stands for and, and what it is.
1: It's the uh, Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, and think of it as like a bigger version of PanSTars. Okay. Actually, PanSTars is supposed to be a smaller version of LSST <laughs> uh, from the original proposal. But so with LSST, with its increased sensitivity and ability to search for things in the sky faster and more thoroughly it could potentially find a lot more of these objects
0: but as for Oumuamua we will have our last observation of it on January 1st 2018 yes it has flown straight through the solar system passed quite close to earth enough so that we could observe it from the ground mm-hmm. for a brief period of time and then it will say goodbye Yes. Unless, of course, it turns around and comes straight for us and tries Mm -hmm. to evaporate our oceans looking for humpback whales. But actually, humpback whales are... um are here. You know, they're, they're they're doing their whale calls and mm. probably communicating with them. That's why it's just, it's happy. You know, it, it's it's come through our solar system, talk to the whales, and it's on its way out now. It's satisfied. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for joining me, Kicheng. Right. This was a pleasure. I learned so much about Oumuamua from you and and your own research as well. So I'm really <laughs> glad that I was able to catch you.
1: All right. Thank you for having me.
0: That concludes episode 23 of Strange New Worlds. I learned a lot about Oumuamua from Kicheng, and I hope you did too. Further investigations of these visitors from other solar systems could potentially help us understand how unique our own solar system is. But for now... It's just cool to think about the fact that we can see something that formed out of a completely different protoplanetary disk. Maybe one day we'll invent the technology to visit Oumuamua's original system, where I'm sure there are many other surprises lying in wait. That's it for Strange New Worlds in 2017. It's been my pleasure to be your host these past six months, and I'll be back in 2018, ready as ever for the second chapter of Season 1 of Star Trek Discovery, and eager to make new discoveries with you by journeying to the intersection of science and Star Trek. Until then, happy holidays, and live long and prosper.